Good morning. Good morning. Ooh, so good. <laughs> Had the uh, Jason up here fluffing you guys getting ready, so that's good. It makes life easier for me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. I know it's a, uh, you know, after spring break and most of you are being off and out gallivanting and doing those things. So it's good to see all your faces here. Shame on those people who aren't here. No, I'm just kidding. It's a, you got to enjoy yourself every once in a while, right? It's a good thing to do. So we're going to jump right in here. And, you know, as you know, I'm going to try to take you on a journey through Scripture and through the totality of Scripture if possible. Um, you know, there's a, there's a big picture to Scripture that I think we miss a lot of times. There's a cohesiveness to Scripture, what I call a meta narrative. Right, what I mean by that is, um, I, I mentioned last service that uh, Pastor Gay is reading through the entire Bible from beginning to end. I know it's novel to think about that because most of the time we just pick and choose encouraging scriptures or little pieces of it. But So she's been reading from beginning to end. And it reminds me of Francis Chan, who is a, a great preacher and fun to listen to. And he had mentioned one time, you know, what if somebody who'd never had an experience with the Bible whatsoever were stranded on a desert island, Tom Hanks castaway-ish, and the only book that we're able to wash up were the Bible, you know, and he's got a lifetime supply of food and water for those of you who think, well, how would he survive, you know? So he just, the Bible washes up. You think he's going to start reading in Matthew? No, he's going to start at the beginning. He's going to work his way through from beginning to end, like every other book that we read. So I always find it interesting when we compartmentalize passages and pieces of Scripture. Most of the time, it's to suit whatever desire that we have. You know, whatever we're trying to get out of scripture or make ourselves feel better, whatever it may be. So we, we kind of dig into those pieces, missing the bigger picture. And so I'm going to try my best to, to show you the bigger picture of Easter. And so you may be thinking, well, Easter was last weekend, and, and that's true on a calendar sense. But I just want to challenge fundamentally, why would we want to celebrate Easter just one day a year? You know, people love to celebrate Christmas 24-7. You know what I mean? But Easter, it's like, well, let's, you know, Easter bunny, chocolate, what have you. But let's just make that one day a year. It baffles me to think about the one day where each one of us were set free and that the Son of God shed his blood and rose again so that we could be completely free indeed, and we have boiled that down to one day. Isn't that crazy? So we're going to unpack that a little bit. We're going to talk about the totality of Scripture and how that culminates at Easter. Now, the other side of it is, I, I just want to say, you know, we talk about Easter sometimes, and it's funny. I, I always have someone in my life that's like, well, you know, Easter, what it was named after, Ishtar, and the, it was the, the Roman Catholic Church stole a pagan holiday, and the bunny represents fertility gods. And you know what? I don't care. I, I really, I could care less if I'm being honest. I don't care where it came from or who has ascribed what to it. I could care less because that's not the part that I care about. The part that I care about is what happened this morning when I recognized again that the Son of God set me free. Just like last week and just like every other day from that point forward. So I don't care where the term comes from or who started the holiday. I really don't. And so I just want to challenge us today to let's look at Easter in totality in our lives every moment because it's happening constantly. All right, so over the last month, Buddy and Gay have taken us on this rebuild journey. Now, you, there's a 200 people, 300 people here, whatever, and there's 300 opinions as to what rebuild is and what it's about. 
You know, some people, you're, you're excited about the student aspect of it. Some are excited about the air conditionings, which when it's, not today, but when it's dead on summertime, you're going to be real happy about that. You know what I mean? Some of you are excited about Smithfield. Some of you are, are not as excited because it has to do with money. Whatever. This journey is so much more than those three pieces or whatever your opinion happens to be. Right? So they spent the last month unpacking Nehemiah. The person, the book, the concept, all of these things. So we spent a lot of time introducing and working through this person who responded. The camera people hate me because I'm constantly like, like you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, there's a sniper someplace and I have to keep moving so they can't get a lock on me. I, I don't, honestly, I don't know why I do that. I just, it's so weird. Anyway, there's a squirrel over there. I saw it. All right, so at any rate, there's Nehemiah. All right, so Nehemiah, historically speaking, was a child of captivity. Here's what you need to understand. The book of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah's brother, Han and I, coming to him and saying, and, and him asking, how's Jerusalem? How's the city? Well, have you ever wondered, why does he care? Because historically, he'd never been there. Historically, he was born in captivity, having never even been to his homeland and probably never meeting the majority of the family that was left behind there. So why does he even care? There's, there's a reason why he moves to how is the city to weeping over the fact that the walls are broken down and that the city is in shambles, and that the people of God, his people, are scattered to the winds, that he falls on his face and begins to pray. There's a reason why that's important. Now, we've talked about rebuilding the wall, right? We've talked about, uh, you know, what that means for us. God's given us a vision. God has given us a vision. God is very specific at times. We'd like to believe that God just casts some giant, vast thing and we're just allowed to weave our way in and out of it and try to, you know, try to settle in and there's no specifics. That's not really the way God works. Because what that does is that leaves us in control on which direction we want to go. Can we be honest with ourselves for a moment? We really stink at making decisions. I mean, we stink at it. We're the worst. Every time in our lives, and if you're just completely honest with yourself, which I know can be difficult at times, it is for me, but every time you make a decision, you push God to the side, and you take it on yourself to be in control, it gets screwed up. It's a colossal nightmare. It's just the truth. We're horrible at it because we're flawed completely. And so... We look at this rebuild, and we start talking about the concept of rebuilding, and it's very tempting for us to say, well, I will do this. By the force of my own will, I will recreate myself. What a sham. It can't happen. We try it every January 1st anyway, right? Every January 1st, we celebrate the brand new year that's going to come. We're going to put away the old year that really stunk, based on our poor decisions, and we're going to just march forward having decided that day that we're going to make a change. I'm not going to eat the quadruple whopper anymore. I'm going to back down to the double whopper. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to work out like there's some mysticism in the first of the year that, that gives us some newfound 
desire to do things. It's crazy. We're horrible at making decisions. Look back in your life and see the wreckage of the decisions that you made. Look back in your life and see when you followed God or you followed yourself and see which path has the most fallout. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to either do your turbo taxes or, that's a great commercial, right? You get a refund. Oh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that, that all the wreckage in your life is due to you and me. So we look at this person, Nehemiah, and we say to ourselves, well, what was he thinking? I mean, how is he going to, to, to build this? How is he going to do it? What was, he, what was going through his mind? And then we look at the story of Salem Fields, and we, start to, we see some, some cohesiveness here. Here's what's interesting about it. Nehemiah had never been there. He didn't know the people there. He'd never been to the temple. And yet he knew that it was his place and he was broken that the walls were down. And he knew enough to fall on his face before the eternal God and pray for deliverance. How could he have known that if it weren't for people in his life that continually reminded him of where they'd been and where they're going? This is the story of Salem Fields. And it's not just our story because this story was passed on through Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene, where Buddy and Gay found Christ, which was passed on wherever their pastor found Christ, which was passed on and passed on and passed on. We are sitting here as a lineage of faithful retelling of the story over and over again. That's important, not just for a history lesson, because it helps us point ahead and still trust that God is God and he's faithful. Now, we struggle with that because when we look at a holy God who's completely faithful and we paste that against ourselves, we got a problem because we aren't. This makes the story of Easter the story of Nehemiah, and the story of rebuild even more fascinating to me. You see, we talked about clearing out the rubble, didn't we? We got to move the rubble out of the way so that we can build fresh. And then we talked about the bricks, and we've talked about the mortar, and we've talked about our participation. It's not enough for us to say, yes, God, I will rebuild, and then we just lay down and let God bring the holy bulldozer along and scrape everything out and do all the process. The people were involved, weren't they? Yes, they were. They did the work. They answered the call. But my premise is this. Why would they be there in the first place? Why did Nehemiah go in the first place if he did not believe that God was completely faithful to do what he said he would do? Why would we start this rebuild process 20 years after all this began and God planned this year, if we did not believe that historically we could prove that God is continually faithful. You understand? This is the point. And here's the biggest point. The bricks and the rubble, though important, are not near as important as the foundation. Because with the finest bricks and the best mortar, and the best craftsman in the world, with a shaky foundation, that wall will not stand. In your life, your greatest will, desire, hope, dreams, commitment, all of it will crumble with a shaky foundation. So what's the foundation? God's promises. The foundation is this, the same that Nehemiah saw 
points ahead to Easter, which points to today, God is faithful. And we enter into that through surrender and obedience. These are, these words, just say it with me, surrender and obedience. It, it almost turns to ashes in your mouth sometimes. Because it goes against our human nature. We don't like to surrender. We really don't. We don't like to be obedient. We like people to surrender to us and be obedient to us. That's what we like. So when we're called to submit, even to God, we struggle. Because we don't like it. Our flesh hates it. Because we want to be in control. I'm going to challenge you several times today, but this is the one challenge. Do yourself a favor and just be honest. Every time you've been in, you've been in control, how has it worked out for you? Just think about it. We struggle with faithfulness, but here's the beauty of the story of Nehemiah. Here's the beauty of Easter, that we should be celebrating on a daily basis, not just one calendar day a year. God gave us a promise of life out of darkness. A promise of life out of darkness. A faithful, promise-keeping God made a commitment to us and said, I will give you life out of darkness. Isn't that worth celebrating every day? Then why have we just put it on one day a year? This is why we're talking about this the week after Easter and why we should continually talk about this every day because, frankly, you and I need to be reminded that we've been called to life out of darkness. And if we are in darkness, it is our own choice that put us there. So what are you going to do? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to look ahead. We're going to talk today about cups. All right, everybody's probably used one in some type of coffee cup or water cup, whatever. So in the Bible, the cup, the, the concept of the cup often means either the container or what's in it. So we're going to talk about both. But when you see cup, every time you read through the scripture, when you see cup, it's usually either talking about the container or what's in the container. Either or. So we have to do some context research to find out. I'm going to challenge your conventional wisdom a little bit today. I'm going to probably, um, I'm going to tell you a very familiar story that you've heard at least once a year, every year, if you've been to church. If you grew up like I did, then you heard it in Sunday school about 100,000 times. You will hear the story, but you're going to hear it very differently today. I'm not telling you that, that it's, I'm not trying to change what you've known. I'm just going to add to it a little bit based on a whole lot of research and a pretty awesome God who reveals some things to us when we need it. So I am going to challenge you a little bit today in that. So, you know, keep your arms and legs inside the car at all times. So, here we are. Here's Nehemiah, never been to this place, brokenhearted, a child of captivity. Think about this. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their, um, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is an interesting passage of scripture. <laughs> because God says, I made a promise to you 
We made a promise together. I kept my end of the bargain. You failed. Now, I believe we can all safely say that we have been in a relationship or known people who don't keep their word on a regular basis. Is that a fun relationship to be in? <laughs> no. And yet, God, who is faithful, continually reaffirms his promises and his covenant to us, knowing that we can't keep our own promise, that we can't keep our own word. Isn't that amazing? So Nehemiah, knowing this, knowing his history, obviously, would look back and say, I, I know what God is saying here. We're not a covenant-keeping people. We're not a promise-keeping people. So he would have thought back to Moses. We know the story. that What Jeremiah is talking about here is the story of Moses. The Jews are captives in the land of Egypt. They're slaves. And God hears their cry and promises to deliver them. So he sends Moses, who was an a, a, um, adopted son of Egypt, if you will, who then ran away after slaying somebody and then got, was a, a sheep herder and then went back and God pushes him into Pharaoh's court. And all of a sudden, this awesome story unfolds where Moses and Aaron are walking up to Pharaoh and they're like, let my people go. No, I won't let your people go. Bam, plague. There's 10 of them. But we're going to focus on the 10th one a little bit. All right, the 10th one was the killing of the firstborn. Let's make it easy for you. This story shows us that God is incredibly faithful and goes to unimaginable lengths to keep his promises to us. It also shows us that we, just like those people, are rebellious, childish shin kickers. Because God did everything that he said he was going to do and more to deliver these people out of bondage. And when they finally got free, all they did was complain. It wasn't enough. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm hot. I'm going to die in the desert. There's an ocean in between me. What are you going to do? I'm sad. Boo. And they complained at God the whole time. And they kick him in the shins. And eventually, they just turn their back on him altogether. No thank you, God. Yeah, you parted the Red Sea, and that's all great. But I'm still mad. I'm still thirsty. And they just turn their back on him. That's a familiar story, isn't it? You know what's interesting about the story of Nehemiah, though? He's a child of captivity. He's a child of the broken promises. You realize something? When we sin, when we turn our backs on God, when we turn away from him, it's not always us that pays the price. Sometimes it's our kids. Sometimes it's generation after generation that pays the price. Nehemiah is in captivity. Though he's the cupbearer of the king in a pretty good position, he's still a slave. And at any moment could be executed for any reason because of his forefathers making a bad decision. And there he sits in captivity, never going home, never truly having any roots because they failed. Doesn't that make our decisions a little more important? Doesn't it begin to matter a little bit more? It's not just us anymore. You and I are willing to pay the price. But your kids... Your kids' kids, generation after generation, 
Here's a perfect example of that. See, Nehemiah was the cupbuilder to the king. He didn't build a wall on a foundation of bricks or stone. He built it on God's promises that he knew. And I'll prove it to you. Because the prayer in Nehemiah, he's very specific about what he says to God. This is a man who knew his history. And this is a man who believed in the faithful promises of God that he is a promise keeper. Even when Nehemiah admits that he is not. This prayer is way deeper than I think most of us get. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 5, he says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He admits right up front, you're a promise-keeping God. O great God in heaven, creator of all things, who keeps his word. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, people he doesn't know. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Here's a man who's taken upon himself to confess the sins of the people he doesn't know. The sins that got him in captivity in the first place. And here he is broken for that. But then he goes even further to say, even I and my father's house have sinned. Not just them, but me. I have failed. I'm a promise breaker, God. You see the contrite heart, the brokenness in this? When he looks up to God and said, you never fail, but I have failed you personally. Would you still hear me? Would you still listen to me? Would you still keep your word to me? And then he reminds God. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded Moses. But remember what you said, God. And this is so important. God said this, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Here's what God said. And Nehemiah prayed this back to God, having experienced it in that moment. God said, if you are unfaithful, if you break your word to me, that I will scatter you across the earth. And guess what? He did. Because Nehemiah was living it. Nehemiah was in a foreign land serving a foreign king with only stories about God to keep him going and keep him grounded. He lived it. But there is an amazing piece to this. But if you return to me, and you keep my commandments and do them, though you're scattered to the furthest parts of the universe, I'll bring you home to my place, to my home. This is the promise that Nehemiah built this wall on. It had nothing to do with the bricks and the mortar and the wood that the king gave him. Those are all things that God supplied to get the, the mission done, but it was so much more than that. 
He built that wall on God's promise. And folks, if you and I are going to rebuild Smithfield, if we're going to rebuild students, if we're going to rebuild the infrastructure, which 1,300 groups used this building last year, who maybe, just maybe, for the first time in their life, heard the name of Jesus and heard the hope that Jesus brings... If we're going to rebuild all that, we need to rebuild us. And if we're going to rebuild us, then we need to have a real foundation to build upon. And it's not your will, and it's not your hope, and it's not your desire, and it's not your money. It's God's promises. Because if we're honest with each other, we break promises constantly, especially to God. But that's not what that wall was built on. It was built on the eternal promise of God. And it can still happen today. He was the cupbearer of the king. You know, I told this story last that there are moments, my mom and dad are actually here today, which is kind of cool always. But there, I was thinking about this last service, and, and it's, it's interesting. There's, there's been moments in my life where, you know, I was just broken. Just broken. Just had reached my bottom. Just had gotten to a place where I just couldn't take anymore. You ever been there? I mean, nothing makes sense anymore. Nothing works anymore. It's like nothing works. You turn the hot water on, cold water comes out. You nothing works. But there's just something about taking the drive, and not everybody can identify with this, but this is my story. There's something about taking the drive, however long it is, no matter where you are in this world, and walking across the threshold of home and sitting down on the couch and just taking a deep breath and being home. Do you, do you understand? This is what God's calling us to. This is his promise. He's saying, I don't care where you've gone. I don't care what you've done. There is no distance too far that you can't come home. Just say yes, and I'll bring you home. If you're away, if you're in darkness, it's because you choose to be. God's promises have not changed. Nehemiah understood human frailty. He understood the failure of us. But he more so understood God's faithful promises. Get that in your head. Because if we don't understand that, we're never going to rebuild anything. Ever. God never changes. Always faithful. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit quickly, a couple hundred years later, to the culmination of this promise. Nehemiah knew that God had made promises and keeps his promises. And now we fast forward to the promises. Here we just heard the story of a cupbearer of the king. Now we hear the story of the king who became a cupbearer. And eventually the cup. Story of Jesus. Here... God himself puts on human flesh and enters this world to fulfill the promise that he made. So we're going to tell the story in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everybody know that story? Matthew 26, 38 through 44. Jesus, after having his last meal with his friends that he'd been with for three years, who still don't get it, takes them to a garden and ask them to watch and pray. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We've been taught, if you've been around church at all, and I'm not saying this isn't the case, but I'm just, we're going to add to this a little bit. We've been taught that Jesus in his humanity, Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. I know that's mind-blowing. But in his humanity, Jesus was looking at this and he's saying, I don't want to die. I, I don't want this. God, if there's any other way, then, then do it. But if, if you can't, if this is the only way, your will be done. I'll follow you. I will do what you need me to do. That's the understanding that almost all of us have, right? Sure it is. And it's understandable. If you were in that position, wouldn't you say the same thing? Haven't you said it in your life anyway? God, is there any other way? Do I have to walk away from this? Do I have to say yes to this? You really want me to be a missionary in Africa? Are you sure? There's got to be somebody else. You know, we, we, we say that all the time. And so we understand Jesus pleading this, saying, you know, maybe this has got to be what he was saying, but let me throw a curveball at you. This was the time of Passover. So this becomes very important. Passover becomes very important right now because Jesus, being a Jew celebrates Passover. And so this takes us all the way back to that story of the 10 plagues all over again. Here's what's especially interesting. The word for Passover is Pesach in Hebrew. All right, Pesach means Passover, to, to, to skip over, if you will. So this tells us the story of the 10th plague. We know from our history that God commanded Moses, go to the people and tell them this, sacrifice an animal, take the blood, paint it over the door frame, and when my angel of death sweeps through the land, when he sees the blood, he will pass over that home. He will pesach that home, pass over to avoid it. But the Egyptians who do not have the same information with no blood over their doorposts, he will abar or pass through that home. And the consequences that follow are devastating. So you've got two words in play here, Pesach, pass over, and abar, pass through. You're probably thinking, well, thanks for the Hebrew lesson, why is that important? And what does it have to do with Easter? Here's why. Jesus spoke Aramaic and Hebrew first off. So believe it or not, the Messianic Jews, which are Jews that believe that Jesus was the Messiah, actually, they, they don't typically, if they read Hebrew or Aramaic, they read it in that language. Well, the translation of this story is different in that language. It's so fascinating. Here's what it says. Jesus praying to God says, if it be your will, let me pass through the cup, not pass over. The word is a bar. Jesus says, let me pass through this cup. Not, don't let it pass over me. Let me take it all. You see the difference? Jesus, in, in that language, is not saying, let me avoid it. He said, I want it all. That's vastly different than a trembling Jesus saying, but I don't want to die. Jesus knew that he was going to die, folks. He talked about it over and over again. So this is no surprise to him. In fact, Jesus is eternal. So he's been with God eternally. He knew this from the beginning of the world and before that this was going to happen. So it's no surprise that he was going to die. I don't believe that the human side of Jesus was worried about dying 
what I believe that he was really sweating blood about was being separated for the first time from the Father. He'd been with him for eternity in communion, in eternity. And for the first time, he was now contemplating separation. And not just separation, but wrath. A perfect and holy man, God, was about to drink his own cup of justice and take all of our rotten sin and get it poured on him like oil. Wouldn't you sweat blood? First time separated from your father who you've been in intimate contact with for eternity. And yet, he had the strength to say, I don't want to avoid this. I want all of it. Now, let me frame this. In the, the Passover tradition, here's what happens. Traditionally, back then, there would be one large cup on the table filled with wine. Now, they didn't filter the wine. So at the bottom of the cup, there's going to be stems and pieces and the bitter pieces they call dregs. All right, the bitterness that would float, or not float, but settle to the bottom of the cup. They would pass the cup around, and everybody would drink as much as they could and then pass on the cup. Well, the savior of the table was usually the one who, when it was getting down low, would drink the entire cup and finish the cup, including the bitter pieces, so that the next person would get the new wine and the sweet wine. So seeing that picture, now we see a Jesus on his face before God, pleading with him to say, I want it all. I want to drain the cup because I don't want to pass the cup of your wrath forward. Do you see the love? Can you comprehend the love? Here we stand with our fragile little hands holding the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus saying, give me that cup because I will drain it and refill it with new wine. God, give me all of it because I don't want to pass any of this forward. Wow. That's amazing. That's humbling. It's mind-blowing. Jesus didn't say, let me skip this. He said, give me all of it. All of it for you and for me. So Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for each one of us. Each one of us get to pass the cup of God's wrath because of the decision that he made. I want it all, he said. All of it. And he endured not just a physical beating. So much more than that. Well, that wasn't the only cup mentioned that evening, right? We know that just before that, like I said, there was a final meal, and, and there was a cup there, and in Matthew uh, 26, 27, 28, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. So he told them, this is the new promise right here. But I want you to get the, the imagery in your mind. Here were these men that he loved so much that he'd spent so much time with and invested everything in who still didn't get it, who couldn't stay awake even for an hour with him, who still denied the fact that he was going to die, who he didn't know what was arguing about who was going to be first in the kingdom of heaven, whatever. 
And here he sees them holding God's wrath in their small hands. And instead of condemning them, which we all deserve and they deserve, he takes the cup of wrath and he gives them instead the cup of salvation. He exchanges cups with them. And they don't even get it fully yet. He takes the cup of bitter wrath and gives them the new wine of freedom and salvation. Man, do you get it? That God drank his own judgment for you and for me? That God says, I don't care where you've gone in this world, you have not run so far that I can't bring you home. That he extends the cup of salvation to the people that he loves, which is all of us, and takes the cup of wrath and drinks every last drop because we can't do it. We couldn't handle it. Only he could. And so, you know what? You and I, here we stand or sit or online with a choice. Do you want to get up from this place and carry the cup of God's wrath back out with you? Or do you want to exchange it for salvation? Do you want to exchange it with Jesus with his hand held out to you, his nail-scarred hands held out, holding the cup of the new covenant, the new promise, the promise that God can only deliver on? A foundation that never shakes. Do you want to rebuild your life on wrath or on salvation, you and I get to choose. And I'm going to ask you to choose. I'll never stop asking you to choose because he never stops asking us to choose. No matter where we go, that hand is still there with the cup, always. That desire is still there saying, give me your wrath. I want it, all of it. Take my salvation. Instead, we call it the beautiful exchange. Always pursuing you and me. Even when we hide, even when we turn our backs, even when we, we're cloaked in sin and despicable choices, God's hand is still ever present calling you. Come home. Just come home. See, Jesus did, we, we can read in Hebrews. I'm not going to read it because it would take forever. Hebrews 9, 11 through 22. He did what only he could do. He entered into the holy place. And instead of using the blood of animals, which was only good for small pieces, he shed his own blood to take our place because that's all that could satisfy God's justice. He's the only one who could drink the cup of God's wrath. He's the only one who could deliver us. In fact... Psalms 116, 13 says that I will lift up the cup of salvation. John 3, 16 says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that any of us who are willing to could exchange wrath for salvation. He's the only one. Acts 4, 12 says there is no salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus. You and I cannot do this on our own. I don't care how strong you think you are. You can't do it. You could be so broken today and say, God, take my life. I have failed you. I'm willing to sacrifice my life. It's not enough because it's impure. It's not enough. God's perfect justice demanded a perfect sacrifice. 
that only he could do. So here we are. We want to rebuild things. We want to rebuild Smithfield. We want to rebuild the infrastructure. We want to rebuild students. But fundamentally, we want to rebuild ourselves. But the foundation is shaky because it's on our own. It's based on our own hopes, desires, will, promise, whatever. It's built on nothing but shaky sand. But God is saying, I will clear the sand away. I will give you the foundation of my promises, which I keep. And not only that, I will take the cup of wrath from you and deliver salvation to you. I will do this. What will you do? So the choice is yours now. Are you in or are you out? Because it's really that simple. It's not a, well, I'm not exactly sure. Are you in or are you out? Because this is what God's calling for us to do. Make a decision. I'm not trying to force your hand. Take your time if you will. I wouldn't. The hand is in front of you now. You really want to take God's wrath? Really? When salvation is right in front of you? I'm scared to surrender. I'm scared to be obedient. Why? Because you do such a good job on your own? Really? I can look at myself in the mirror for 10 seconds and say, man, your hair looks great, number one. Number two, you make bad decisions. You do bad. When left to your own devices, Kelly, you wreak disaster. You slay people. You leave wreckage everywhere that you go when you're in control. So you really want to take control again? Is that what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk out the door and think I can do better today because I've made a commitment to myself? Ridiculous. God's hands extended. Are you in or are you out? What are you going to do? It's a simple exchange. Wrath for salvation. Didn't come cheap. It cost the God of the universe his very own blood. But he paid it in full and drank it all for you and me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. I just, God, it's humbling to, to think that you've done all of this. And that we have broken every single promise we've ever made to you, God. We are horrible. And we know it. And you're holy and you're perfect. And we, we stand in your presence and we, we say, why? Why me? And with unimaginable love, you look at us and you say, because you're mine and I want you home. So God, you've offered us freedom and home. God, please break our hearts for this. Thank you for what you did on Easter. Let us celebrate this every moment. Let us rebuild on your foundation and your promises because that's the only thing that we can be sure of. You've never failed, and you won't start now, God. So I ask you that your Holy Spirit would have free reign right now because someone here really thinks they've gone too far. Someone here really believes that it might be true, but not for them. It's too far, God, and that is a lie because you've extended the cup of salvation. It's waiting. So God, let us drink deeply of that cup. In the name of Jesus.
Stand and worship with us, please.